0: Welcome back to the Borough Shire Podcast. I'm Brandon Vaught, one of the two co-hosts, and I'm joined here, as we are every episode, by Father Blake Britton, my best friend. Father Blake, good to see you. Good to see you as well, brother. Excited about this podcast. <laughs> Me too. We're talking about Vatican II. We'll get there in just a moment, but uh, the, the big news in the Vaught household is that Gosh, what was it? Let's see, I'll do the math here. 12, about 15 hours ago, uh, we welcomed into the world little Maria Caroline. So she's our seventh born child now that we've added to our family. And um, we're just super thrilled. Father Blake is uh, gonna be baptizing her in just a few days here. Uh, but I mean, what, what else can you say about the the birth of a new child? It's it's so glorious. It's a, it's such an incredible feeling that you've co-created something with God, that you've participated in the process of bringing new life into being. its I mean, I'm still staggered by it even after seven kids, but um, I can't wait for you to meet her, Father Blake. You're gonna come over here in a couple days to, to finally meet her.
1: I'm very excited, and of course, to introduce her into the bright light culture, into the reading culture. And
0: <laughs> she has so much to learn.
1: Give her the full indoctrination of how to read and collect books and how
0: to study the church. (laughs) So maybe maybe little Maria will make a cameo on the Borough podcast sometime soon. (laughs) I thought about trying to bring her in here, but I think she's sleeping right now. So we'll postpone that. Today, we are going to be talking about what you should know about Vatican II. Now, we've received a lot of comments and encouragement from listeners of the show to talk about Vatican II. In fact, one of my friends, Claire, uh, who... You'll find on Instagram under Finding Philothea, fantastic Instagram channel. She sent me an email um, a couple months ago and she said, I know you guys probably get so many topic requests for the podcast, but would you ever consider doing one on the Second Vatican Council? Claire says, I know you reference it often, but I would love to learn more about the details, where exactly to find the documents to read, what the documents are, who the key players were in their roles and how to defend it, the council. It would help so much. And like I said, we've received several similar emails like this. Father Blake and I are obviously very enthusiastic and positive about the Second Vatican Council, so people have naturally wanted to hear more. Uh, Before we get into it, Father Blake, I I wanted to mention a few reasons why I think an episode like this or a discussion like this is especially timely, um, so, as we'll learn here in a moment, the Vatican, Second Vatican Council ended in 1965, which means we only recently, five years ago, passed the 50th anniversary of the Council. Um, also Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, is in very frail health, as anyone who's seen recent pictures has noticed. It's likely he's not going to be in this world much longer. Uh, And with his death will come the passing of sort of a major moment in the church. He's one of the—is he the only one, Father Blake, or one of the few remaining living people who were at the council?
1: he's one of the few remaining living
0: theologians in particular who helped orchestrate and help guide the Council under the Holy Spirit. But certainly like the the last major living influential theologian of the Council, there were others who were very young and attended sort of in supporting roles, but in terms of people who like majorly influenced the discussions and texts, he's kind of the last one. So with his death it'll be the passing of an era. Also um, certain theologians and thinkers, especially on the Internet, have been increasingly derogatory about the council, denouncing it and saying it contains error, that we should drop it and forget it. Um, I don't wanna bring up specific names or specific platforms, but anyone in the world of Catholic social media has seen this sort of language and has noticed an uptick in animosity toward the council. Um, So because of that, I I think it's quite timely for a a strong defense of the Second Vatican Council. And then uh, finally, we'll maybe talk more about this in a little bit. Father Blake has been working on a book for the last few months. He is under contract with Ave Maria Press to release a book. It'll come out in 2021 titled, I think the working title at least, is Reclaiming Mm -hmm. Vatican II. So it's all about this stuff. So Father Blake (laughs) has been... Uh, thinking about this, praying about it, reading about it, writing about it. Um, So it's at the forefront of, of his mind.
1: Yeah, most certainly. It's funny, as we were discerning this podcast and, of course, uh, taking into consideration the emails that were sent, I said, I don't know if I want to tell them. They may not buy my book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll keep, them, I'll keep them on the edge of their seats. But all joking aside, it's, it's such a beautiful grace in church history. And, uh, and I really am excited to, to reflect on, on the Second Vatican Council because there's also a lot of fruit of the council that have yet to be actualized. And it's a council that's been specifically entrusted to our generation. Only every several hundred years in church history is a generation of Catholics entrusted with the implementation of a council, specifically an ecumenical council of the Church, which is the highest form of conciliar and ecclesiastical gathering possible from other Church on this earth. We're one of those generations. We're one of the, those sets of people, just like Charles Borromeo and Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, they who lived immediately after the Council of Trent. We, too, have been entrusted with implementing this council for the sake of salvation of souls. So this is a very timely topic that every Catholic
0: should be concerned about, but specifically our generation of Catholics. I think we talked about that in the second or third episode on becoming saints in our time, not just becoming saints in the abstract, but taking account of the particular place and time that God has put us that can contribute to our sanctification. And as you've hinted, if we read the signs of the times and of the place we've been put in, it's very clear that one of the roles of every Catholic alive today is to properly implement this council. Um, It it is undoubtedly the most significant event Mm -hmm. of the last hundred years for the Catholic Church. Um, Almost every conciliar council can lay claim to that fact. But for us, I I mean, it's it's unquestionably the most pivotal, significant event. So it deserves attention. I should add the qualification here at the beginning. This will certainly not be an exhaustive discussion. We're actually going (laughs) to try and stay pretty high up you know, at, at the 30,000 foot level and give a, a good overview of the council and some of the major issues that are still in contention today. But we're not going to get into the nitty gritty weeds of each document. Maybe we'll do separate episodes later on on each document. But also know at the end of this episode, I'm going to provide a bunch of book recommendations for those that want to go even further. But let's start with this. And, Father. To,
1: that point, and to that point, I mean, the intricacies And development leading up to the Second Vatican Council are so detailed it would be nearly impossible within this podcast to address them all. So it's not so much out of desire to avoid discussing any topic as it is. It's such a wide breadth of topics to address. This took almost five centuries of development, Second Vatican Council, um, and also the documents of Vatican II. We will uh, address briefly some of the origins, specifically when we talk about the Restor and Jordan movements within the Second Vatican Council. But overall, we won't be able to talk about everything, unfortunately. But it is uh, it's a really incredible event in the life of the Church.
0: Let's start off with some very basic key terms. So this phrase, ecumenical council, might be a mouthful and might be new <laughs> to a lot of people. So let's start there. What is an ecumenical council? Wonderful. It's a gathering of All the magisterium,
1: and in the case of the Second Vatican Council you also had lay men and women uh, participate, but all of the bishops and all of those entrusted with leading the church in order to discuss, define, clarify, and implement the teachings of the church in a particular context in church history. So we know for example, the original ecumenical councils, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, these councils were summoned in order to address particular theological topics, such as the incarnation of Jesus being fully human, fully divine. Mary as the mother of God. Jesus Christ is not being only human or only divine, but him sharing in this and what we call in theology, the hypostatic union. So these are all ways that the church organically and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, through her bishops who have been entrusted with the tradition and teaching of the church, form and formulate the way that we understand the mystery of the revelation of Jesus Christ, his passion, his death, his resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. It's a beautiful event in church history when there's an ecumenical council. It's an exciting event, and it also is a wonderful testament to the fact that the church of Jesus is not static. She's alive. The Church of Jesus is always striving for new, profound, and beautiful ways to re-understand and to more deeply appreciate what the Savior has given her through his death on the cross and through handing over his bride, the Church.
0: So we're here in the 21st century, which makes it easy to remember that this Vatican Second Vatican Council was the 21st ecumenical council. So you can do the math. It's roughly, you know, one ecumenical council every hundred years. So it's a, it's a rare occasion. There are millions of Catholics that have lived throughout history who never experienced an ecumenical council or even lived during the wake of one of them. So it's a major, major event in the church's history. I, I want to emphasize, Father Blake, something you said earlier, that it is the highest form of magisterial teaching in the church it's the highest right. level of teaching in the church because what it represents is all the bishops in the world the successors to the apostles in communion with the bishop of rome the pope collectively communally comprehensively teaching in the name of Christ and the Apostles. So there's no higher form of teaching. We shouldn't just flippantly approach the Second Vatican Council documents as if, you know, there's those texts over there, but then we have, you know, texts from modern contemporary writers, and we got texts Mm -hmm. from this or that bishop and this or that theologian. They're on a whole different level of authority than any other thing coming out of the magisterium, but certainly far above anything written by private theologians or interpreters. And within that, the four major documents also
1: hold a special kind of weight. So these are sacto Sanctum Concilium, which is the document on the sacred liturgy, Lumen Gentium, which is the document on the church, Dei Verbum, which is the document on divine revelation, and finally Gaudium Espes, which is the document on evangelization in the modern world. These are the four hinges, if you will, of the council, through which all the other lesser documents, there are 16 documents, uh, stabilized and sort of foundational documents of the council. Uh, all the other documents flow out of those four areas of focus, which is the liturgy, the essence of the church, divine revelation, meaning not just sacred scripture, although that's a huge part of it, but also how Christ uh, and how the Father reveals truth to man. And finally, on the task of missionary zeal in the life of the church.
0: All right. I don't want to jump too far ahead to the text and the documents themselves. I want to stick for a minute with what happened before the council and why yeah. was it convened and why was it called? So maybe I'll post that question to you. I think this is an area that doesn't get enough attention, which is yeah. the immediate preconciliar church, the situation, say, in the first half of the 20th century that led Pope John 23rd to decide— to call the Council, to to recognize that this is what the Holy Spirit wants for His Church right now. So maybe answer that question as best as you can. Why the need for Vatican II? Right.
1: So really, there's a twofold answer to this question. First, I'll give a little bit of historical context of the time period immediately before the Council, but also there are about a century worth of happenings that took place leading up to Vatican II that are also contributive to the summoning of the council. So first, the immediate historical context. We know that at that time period, the church had been strong. It's not as if the church was going through any sort of major crisis. This is actually one of the main critiques of the Second Vatican Council. You had Catholic schools were full, parishes were full. Um, There was starting to be a lull in vocations right before the Council, so it's not like there were a lot of vocations before then. The vocation crisis actually started briefly before the Second Vatican Council, so you did start seeing a drop in vocations, which is always one of the first indicators that something needs to be renovated and revived. Um, But in general, the Church was in a good place right before the Second Vatican Council, if you look at it superficially. Now, where there really was an area of concern, and this is one of the main areas of focus that the bishops had, was within the hearts of the faithful themselves. So although the faithful most certainly were people of faith, and they most certainly understood the teachings of the church, meaning they could repeat them back to you, as far as having an actual tactile, in-depth appreciation of the theology of the church, specifically within the context of the Sacred Liturgy, which is why the first document published by the Second Vatican Council is a document on the Sacred Liturgy. The Church understands that that is the source and summit of her life. Everything flows out of the sacrifice of the Holy Mass and the the other seven, six sacraments of the Church. So within this area, there was a real need for a renewal in the hearts of God's people. Pope Benedict XVI, in one of his last audiences before his resignation with the clergy in the city of Rome, mentioned how, specifically within the liturgy itself, there was a dichotomy between the priest and the people. How what would typically take place is the priest would be celebrating the divine liturgy in a beautiful way, but the people would typically have their own kind of uh, spiritual piety taking place. So, they would be praying the rosary they'd be reading through their missalettes uh, they would be having moments of private devotion some would walk out the church and come back only for communion because the liturgy belonged to the priest it didn't have anything to do with them all that they were there for was either to receive communion or to just fulfill their sunday obligation like, once again i'm generalizing so i'm sure there were those faithful who were very well educated and devout to the faith but it wasn't something that on mass was appreciated by many of God's people. So this became one of the primary concerns of the Second Vatican Council. Another huge point that led to Vatican II was how rapidly the secular world was changing. Specifically, the church's relation to the secular world. The secular world was being influenced by radical militant atheism. And this atheism directly sought to discredit and derelativize the church so that she was no longer something that was important in the world and had nothing to say to the world. And that's why St. John the Twenty-Third would also write his encyclical, Pacem Interis, which speaks about peace on earth and how to relate to the modern world. St. Paul VI would write a similar uh, encyclical in which he would talk about our need to engage with the modern world. In other words, to allow our message not to have a negative Negative understanding of the world which was very common before the second Vatican Council So we have this sort of denunciation if you will of the modern world and seeing it more as a threat to the life of the church But rather a positive approach of dialogue with the world now There are some fallouts from the misimplementation of that notion of dialogue with the modern world which we'll get to in a little bit but in general this is a beautiful sentiment and it's one that's very important and I firmly believe has kept the church and a dynamic relationship with the world up to this day. This is why St. John Paul II was able to travel all around the earth and preach his gospel. This is why Pope Benedict XVI was able to give an address in the German General Assembly when he visited Germany. This is why Pope Francis is able to come to the UN and to speak and be heard. It's because the church is seen as this dynamic force within the world, and that's mostly thanks to the insight of the Council Fathers at Vatican II. The last point that I'll make for really understanding the Second Vatican Council, there are two words which are absolutely essential. Ressourcement and aggiornamento. Ressourcement means a return to the sources, a return to the sources. One of the major contributions to the Second Vatican Council was a rediscovery of what we call patristics. Patristics are the writings and teachings of the early Church Fathers and mothers. These are the men and women that lived in the first several centuries of Catholicism, and they had a beautiful insight and a profound appreciation for Catholicism, which had been largely lost and forgotten in the general consciousness of the faithful and even within the clergy and the episcopacy itself. But thanks to discoveries in the deserts of Egypt, thanks to discoveries in libraries throughout Europe and throughout different Franciscan monasteries, even in the New World, we were able to find writings from these church fathers that we thought were extinct. And this led to new births of theology and dialogue within the life of the church. Think especially about the writings of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The theology of Mary has grown exponentially in the past century, in a way that it has not existed for a long time. The theology of of the notion of the church, and what it means to be church, and the church's relationship with Mary. So all these different aspects led also to the Second Vatican Council, and of course, aggiornamento means this renewal, so this bringing the gospel anew to the world. So that's a very quick, quick summarization of the many, many faceted uh, topic of what led to the Second Vatican Council
0: i'm finishing this really good book right now it's by george weigel it just came out recently but it's titled the irony of modern catholic history and i'll say more about it kind of where we get toward the end but he's tracing the modern history of catholicism so maybe like the last 200 years and he breaks it into this five act drama that's centered around the second vatican council which son serves as the pivot and what he describes is this whole narrative can be can be read in light of the church's approach to modernity before the second vatican council the church's dominant response was a big no to modernity to modern thinkers modern forms of of government modern politics modern economy no, 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 no. Now, again, overgeneralizing, there's obvious exceptions, but I think like this could be very well represented in something like Pope Pius IX's Syllabus of Errors, which you could argue was needed at the time. There were so many forces threatening the church, but the Syllabus of Errors is one long list of bad, bad, no, no, don't do that, bad. It's a wholesale rejection of modernity. What Vatican II wanted to do was to open a conversation with modernity, with modern philosophers, modern thinkers, modern cultures, modern economies, all all these things. But, and here's the important thing, not just dialogue for the sake of dialogue, but Mm -hmm. it wanted to convert modernity. That was the point. Uh, You often hear the expression that Vatican II opened the doors and the windows of the church The purpose of doing that wasn't to let the world in, to secularize the church. The purpose was to let the church out, to Christify the world. So Vatican Council represents this pivot where instead of no, 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 no to modernity, it's let's convert modernity. But to convert it, you have to be in conversation and dialogue with it. This is why John Paul II often repeated in both his encyclicals and his traveling statements that the church proposes but doesn't impose the church isn't this institution imposing its will on a resistant modernity it's proposing the joy and truth of the gospel and encouraging people to freely accept it so it's a it's a big shift in the attitude of the church toward the world now as we'll mention later on there's controversy there some people don't like this shift they they like the pre-conciliar just Rejection of modernity and think that that's a better evangelical strategy, but very clearly this was a major turn at the council Yes, very much so and I would argue
1: That this turn is what has allowed the church to continue her mission in the modern world Think about the mentality that it takes I know I speak to many parents who are struggling because their children are transgender or who are struggling because their son says that he has same-sex attraction or their daughter says that she hates the church now because it's closed-minded and its view on abortion. If you just go to your child and say, Do it because the church says so, how will that teenage or young adult child respond? But when you speak with your child and you really are seeking to understand where their heart is, so why do you think that you're a different gender? Why do you feel the same sexual attraction? Why, why do you really believe that abortion is what upholds the fullness of human dignity and is good for women. If you approach with this kind of posture, then you have much more room now to convert and to transform that person's heart
0: to the fullness of truth, which is our ultimate goal. All right. Now let's go through a basic timeline. And I'm just going to kind of read through this briefly. I don't know if we need to talk about each item here. And then I want to take us all the way to the end of the council so that we can shift gears and talk about what happened after the council, which in some ways is where like the meat is, like how this council was interpreted and implemented. But real briefly, Pope John the Twenty Third was elected Pope. I think in 1959, and it was only a few months after he was elected Pope. It was like almost immediately that he announced he had sensed the Holy Spirit wants a new council for the church so this was kind of like a bombshell announcement this brand new pope announces an ecumenical council all of a sudden now that was announced in 1959 it took three and a half years to plan and to form an agenda and to start drafting up some of these documents. So different theologians and groups in the Vatican sort of prepared schemas or like, you know, preparatory documents that would kind of kick off the discussion. They weren't the last word, but it's like we got to have something to start with to talk about. So three and a half years it took um, from 1959 until 1962. The Second Vatican Council officially opened in October 1962, around 2,600 people participated. That was mostly bishops. Every active bishop in the world that could travel there was there along with um, uh, Paridi, which are experts. Um, Joseph Ratzinger was one of these, Paritus, one of these experts, Um, other theologians, and then many observers. So they invited observers from um, the Eastern Orthodox communities, even I think some Protestant pastors or representatives were there as observers. John O'Malley, probably the greatest historian of the Second Vatican Council, claims that it was the largest meeting in the history of the world. Think about that. The largest meeting in the history of the world. You know, you have 20, 30, 50,000 gather for a football game, but they're just spectators watching a sport. But imagine 2,600 people coming together to talk and to debate and to, to write documents together. It was a massive logistical and administrative challenge um, but it started in october 1962 now it ended up going over four sessions one session per year so the council didn't just start and continue until its end they kind of went in session took a break went in session took a break the first session was from october to december 1962 and it it was kind of greasing the wheels you know you had four months here no documents, none of the original documents were approved. So the whole first session was just kind of discussion, debate, getting the hang of things, but nothing was really definitively settled. But then after the first session in June of the next year, 1963, Pope John XXIII dies. So now in the midst of this council, you now have a conclave to elect a new pope. So a lot of chaos, a lot of questioning, who's it gonna be, who's gonna succeed him. That's when Pope Paul VI was elected pope and decided to carry on the council, which came with not a little little controversy. Some other uh, antagonists thought he should just cap the council and give it up. You know, that was John XXIII's thing. You You don't have to continue it, but he did. And so the second session began in that same year. It lasted from September to December of 1963, And that resulted in the approval of two of the final 16 documents. And as Father Blake noted, the very first one to uh, be approved with almost complete consensus agreement was the document on the sacred liturgy, which is interesting. We'll come back to this because that is often one of the most contentious parts of the Vatican Council (laughs) now. But notice it was the very first and almost the— the most um, consensus agreed upon document. So that one, and then there was a a minor decree as well. The third session starts the next year, September to November 1964. Three more documents were approved at that one. So now we're up to five. And then the final session, which was September to December of 1965. So this is the fourth session. um, That's when the 11 final documents were approved and the whole thing wrapped up. So when we say Second Vatican Council, we're talking 1962, to 1965 they met four times roughly three to four months for each one of these sessions so that's a a little basic timeline but then father blake what i want where i want you to take us is what happened after december 1965 was the bow (laughs) wrapped up neatly and everyone moved on in harmony or what happened after that (laughs) <laughs>
1: Why would you say that the Holy Spirit didn't go up? The fact Spirit that you laugh,
0: the fact that you laugh, probably doesn't <laughs> bode well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I mean, this this is the question, right? Uh, and there, and there, and once again, there's so much that can be said about this, and I'm almost wondering if this should be a two-part podcast, and maybe have another another one just on this second topic, but. I would say that the Holy Spirit did wrap up Second Vatican Council in a bow for us. I mean, he, the Holy Spirit member is the ultimate one who guides an ecumenical council. And that's another important, really to, important point to focus on, is that this was not just a bunch of guys getting together, putting their own ideas and, and ideological opinions into a council. These finalized documents were done under the guidance of the third person of the Blessed Trinity and confirmed through the prayers of the Magisterium of Mother Church. So there's a kind of trust and fidelity with which we must approach these teachings and documents. So I would say that the Holy Spirit did wrap it up nicely for us, but like most things, when we got it from the Holy Spirit, we didn't do a very good job <laughs> <laughs> taking care of what the Holy Spirit gave us. So immediately following the Second Vatican Council, and even during the Council itself, there were thinkers and theologians who were trying to implement and guide the Council not according to the directives of the Holy Spirit or the Magisterium, but according to their own ide- ideologies. This is what we call the Council of the Magisteriums, if you will. Um, the Council that, that really was in the mind of some theologians, but not the actual Council that was taking place. There are two other major influences, both during and immediately after the Second Vatican Councils. So we have the Council of the Magisterium, then I would say there was another kind of council, which Pope Benedict XVI calls the Council of the Media. Fake news is not a new phenomenon; <laughs> it's been happening for a long time. And the media during the 60s and 70s were emphatic on trying to highlight drama, trying to make it to where the, there is these crazy things happening behind the closed doors of the council, and also trying to really uh, to trying to make the council something into it wasn't. Uh, trying to transform the council into this revolutionary kind of event that sought to change Mother Church at her roots and cast away the old and bring in the new. It sounds very familiar because that kind of talk was prevalent during the 60s and the 70s, which brings us to the third influence, which I call the Council of the Age, to the council of the particular historical context in which Vatican II was convened. We know that the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s were a turbulent time, not just in American history, but in world history in general. And part of that turbulence was this radicalism that was going throughout the European and North American continents. You had a rise in socialist kind of mentalities. You had a rise in Marxist kind of mentalities. Communism, of course, the Cold War, the space race, the civil rights movement, all of these things were there. And now Vatican II is, is wrapped into that whole group and is seen as a... A continuation, once again, by the media and by people who are commenting on it is seen as, as also this revolutionary kind of event that's taking place with all these other revolutionary events. So these three influences, specific theologians who had their own minds and what they thought the council should be, the media presenting version of the council, and the time period in which the council was convened and completed, all led to what we call now the Paracouncil. This term was popularized by, by Henry de who was a Jesuit present at Vatican II, along with Joseph Ratzinger. They both note these three influences. And Henry de Lubac dubs these influences the "Paracouncil" or the anti-council, meaning that immediately follow, following Vatican II, there was a group of people and influences which did not present what Vatican II authentically taught, but what they thought Vatican II should be teaching. A perfect example is within the liturgy itself. Of course, as you mentioned, Brandon, one of the most contentious places, unfortunately, nowadays, because it was not contentious for the Council Fathers. But it's now contentious for us, because what we're arguing against is not actually what Vatican II taught, but what the Paracouncil tells us Vatican II taught. And this is a point that we'll get into later in the podcast, but I strongly encourage our listeners and viewers, please read the documents themselves. A lot of us is, have heard about Vatican II secondhand, but not from the source itself. So you have a rise in this, let's call liberal or leftist kind of thinking about Vatican II and what it should have done. They were upset about the Second Vatican Council because they didn't think it was liberal enough. They didn't think that it went far enough, and so they have their own narrative. As a result of that narrative, another group rises up which we call the traditionalist movement or the conservative reaction to vatican ii the ironic thing is that the conservative movement is not actually reacting to the second vatican council but the majority of the time they're actually reacting to the para council so not to what vatican II actually taught one of the best times i experienced this myself was at the march for life when i was uh walking with some sspx seminarians so the sspx is this traditionalist group um, that has well, was founded right after the Second Vatican Council as a response to the Paracouncil by Archbishop uh, Lefebvre. And it was a wonderful conversation. I was a seminarian at the time as well. And we were talking and eventually the seminary at one point says, you know, well, one of the things I don't like about Vatican II is that it got rid of Latin. Well, that's not said anywhere in a single document of the Second Vatican Council. It doesn't mention getting rid of Latin anywhere. It doesn't mention the priest facing the people anywhere. It doesn't mention, uh, us have uh, uh, many, many things uh, that we currently do, not just in the liturgy, but, but elsewhere in the church. And so we, ha- we proceeded to have a conversation about Sacrosanctum San Concilium. He confessed he had never actually read the document. And again, that's not just trying to bash him. I mean, in general, a lot of people have not had the opportunity to read these documents. So all of that led to this massive misapplication and misimplementation of the council. That's got us to where we are right now, which is that the majority of practicing Catholics and also those who are not practicing don't really know what the council authentically taught, but rather are influenced by the para-council. And this is where you'll get mentalities such as, well, Vatican II got rid of this, or Vatican II said that, or "You know, we're supposed to do this or that, or from the other side with the conservative movement, when they'll critique and say, well, Vatican II is bad because of X, Y, or Z. Uh, and it's really it's a it's a dangerous place for us to be, and that's why I really think we need to reclaim Vatican II and its authentic documents and its authentic implementation, which would be very different from what we commonly experience now.
0: Yeah, I want to underline, highlight. If I was Father Blake, I'd dump a whole bucket of highlighter fluid across <laughs> it because that's how he highlights his books. Uh, but I want to just accentuate the points that he just made. If you if you maybe don't take away anything else from this podcast, this point is so critical that most of the dispute that you'll see about the Second Vatican Council today is not a dispute over what the actual texts of the Second Vatican Council said, but about what the immediate followers interpreted and how they implemented these texts. If you take nothing away but just recognize that fact, it solves a lot of the problems. When you can get behind those debates and get back to the texts themselves, I think that's what's needed for us to finally rightly interpret this council many many church leaders have observed that the holy spirit didn't inspire the para-council or even what the council fathers intended their motivations what they meant this or that passage to say their their preconceived agendas what the holy spirit inspired the church to release are the texts themselves the texts themselves now You could argue all day that the people that wrote the text had mixed motivations and intentional ambiguities that could later be exploited. Doesn't matter. What matters is what those documents themselves say. That's part of the magisterium. Right. And along with that,
1: there are also beautiful new and renovated teachings that the Second Vatican Council gives us. When I say new teachings, I don't mean that it changed any essential doctrines of the Church. Not at all but rather gave us this beautiful openness now by which to move forward. So whereas on the conservative side of critique, and we know this is an important point to make, by the way, that as a Catholic, we are never liberal and we're never conservative. Those are worldly, secular, political categories, and it's very inappropriate for us as Catholics to label ourselves as liberal or conservatives. We are Catholic, which means that we're rooted in the truth and that truth is traditional, and that truth is also missionary. It's renewed. It's sourced in this font of life that is the Holy Spirit. We're always a people of the both and. So whereas on the conservative side of critique, the council does nothing to take away tradition, does nothing to violate the beauty of the history of our church, but also on the other side of it, the church very much does encourage us to go beyond our preconceived notions And to seek out a beautiful posture of evangelization towards the world and also towards our brothers and sisters and other Christian denominations and other religions. So interreligious dialogue with economies, with social political programs. So there's all these wonderful ways in which the Second Vatican Council has both conserved tradition as
0: well as stretched our boundaries of evangelization. Yeah, I love that. We need more of that both-and reading of the council, of historical events. Uh, just to say one more thing here about this post-conciliar period. By the way, if you want a really good but short summary of the things we've just been discussing for the last couple of minutes, Bishop Barron has a great video, I'll link to it beneath this podcast, titled Bishop Barron on His Theological Path, and he very pithily Summarizes what happened in the post conciliar years and traces it not just in the immediate years but all the way through the pontificates of John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis. And he highlights, I think, a very important turn in the post conciliar years, which is that after the council ended in 1965, you had almost this immediate splintering of people on the far left and the far right. And we've mentioned some of those names already. Like on the far left, you might have Hans Kung. On the far right, you would have uh, quasi-schismatic groups like the SSPX and Archbishop Lefebvre. But then in the middle, you had a much larger, broader coalition of people that were mostly like-minded. A lot of them um, joined together to start a publication, a journal called Concilium, and these were, I mean, the brightest theologians in the Catholic Church of the day. They, they came together to keep thinking and, and writing about the conciliar topics. However, it soon became clear to some of the writers and theologians on this board that the main figures in charge of this concilium journal wanted to, in some ways, perpetuate the council to keep a lot of these questions open that had Kind of already been settled by the Second Vatican Council, and so the Concilium journal took a turn, you might say, to the left. It was spearheaded by theologians like Karl Rahner and Edward Schillebeckx, but then a group of the original Concilium editors spun off a new journal called Communio. You might have heard that term Communio because it represents a whole school of interpretation of Vatican II. And here's why. Here's what I'm driving at with all these terms and names. The Communio editors included people like Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Henri de Lubac. John Paul II himself kind of emerges out of this Communio school and is in close collaboration with all the Communio people. It became clear in the decades after the Second Vatican Council that the Communio path or the Communio interpretation of Vatican II is the one that held sway. Um, So if you want to maybe summarize a super complicated history into just a a very simplistic narrative, that'd be the way to describe it. This sort of middle ground communal path that doesn't go to the far extremes on either side, doesn't think we should perpetuate the council, but wants to properly implement it. That's what this communal school represents. And again, I'm going to link to this Bishop Barron video because he, I think, paints this narrative very well. And one of the main characteristics of that Communio movement,
1: I'm so happy you brought it up, Brandon, is their influence from the Church Fathers. If I could narrow down one of the main blessings of the Second Vatican Council, it was a reintroduction into the common life of the faithful of our patristic tradition. And tradition doesn't just mean that which is from the Council of Trent onward. Tradition involves 2,000 years of church history. And that includes, of course, these early church fathers, Basil of Caesarea, Cyprian of Carthage, Origen, Tertullian. Of course, we also discovered many ancient church liturgies, which also informed the, the new Roman Missal, what we call the Missal of St. Paul the Sixth. This Roman Missal uses a lot of the prayers from the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th century AD. These are uh, adaptations of the prayers of St. Hippolytus of Rome. These are adaptations of the prayers of St. James and the liturgies of St. Peter. Uh, Really incredible ways to help re-engage the original and unique understanding of the early church that was closest to the source, who's Jesus Christ himself and his sacrifice on the cross. So this communio movement very much is quickly becoming the thinking heart of the church and the place where the church thinks. And I strongly encourage our viewers and listeners to really acquaint themselves with the communio thinkers. Uh, They're incredible men and women who really are thinking with the church. So you have some people who think outside the church and then try to approach it and critique it from the outside. You have others who freelance and sort of do their own thing. And then you have those who think with the church, meaning that they take the discernment, the question, the prayers, the drama of Catholicism, and they gnaw on it through the Holy Eucharist and through contemplation and through the writings of tradition. And they're really trying to find a way to share the beauty of that truth with the world. And the Communio thinkers are such people.
0: Maybe we'll do an episode later on just in the Communio school um, because it's so shaped both Father Blake, myself, Bishop Barron, um, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast will probably have been unknowingly shaped by the communio way of reading the church and theology, et cetera. So maybe we'll do an episode on that down the line, but, uh, we're clocking in here at 45 minutes, <laughs> which, <laughs> which for us is like the prologema, la- la- like the, the, just the opening of a, of a Boroughshire council session. Um, but I'll tell you what, Father Blake, let's, let's. Kind of wind it to a close with two things and we're just going to have to rush through these quickly again maybe we'll do a fuller episode later on one thing is i want to walk through quickly some of the major controversies or objections regarding vatican ii Um, i mentioned at the beginning my friend claire when she asked us to write or to do a podcast episode on this one of the things she asked and that others have asked is why is Vatican II so contentious? Like everything you and I just described sounds pretty nice. Like what's the big deal? Why are people so upset about it? So let's briefly go through some of those. And then finally we'll conclude. I want to give people some good book recommendations on strategies to go deeper and to understand the council. So let's start. As we enter into that conversation,
1: what the lens from which we need to enter it. So why is it so contentious is again, the lens of uh, the authentic second Vatican council and the para council so what we're about to hear right now all the 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 reasons for the contention is because of the para council because of the misimplementation and misinterpretation and also the the ambiguity meaning the morphing of the original intention of the council itself so with that lens on of the para council we'll we'll have this brief dialogue and we'll also Understand that the fruit of the Paracouncil unfortunately was the rising up of these two radical groups So you have the group on the left which is trying to push almost like a new-age kind of Catholicism and then the group on the right That's trying to negate history and negate the beauty and the organicness of the church and to return to something that they really believe in their hearts and the goodness of their hearts will preserve the church and its dignity but isn't walking with mother church in history
0: Okay, let's maybe break these objections into those two groups. I know you and I both kind of hesitate about using right and left type categories, but I think for the sake of simplicity, most of our listeners will will understand what we mean. So let's start by taking objections from the so-called right. Um, So these would be hyper conservative, even all the way to the SSPX schismatic group. What are their objections to Vatican II? I think we can group them into three or four categories. The first one has to do with the liturgy. They think that the Second Vatican Council represented a major rupture and deformation of the liturgical life of the Church. Maybe maybe you steel man that objection, give it a little force, and then talk to me about how you'd respond to it.
1: Yeah, so of course there is a lot of ways in which the liturgy was abused immediately following the Second Vatican Council under the guidance and influence of the Paracouncil. Once again, throughout parishes in the United States of America, what was implemented was not sacrosanctum chilium. What was implemented were not the documents of Vatican II, but rather these ways in which particular priests or bishops or theologians and lay men and women thought that the liturgy should be or thought that Vatican II would have liked it to be. This is where you got really a lot of crazy things happening, uh, and I, I don't want to elaborate a whole bunch of them, but one of the main things that's brought up is something like a clown mass, you know, or a carnival mass. You had priests who would dress up in clown costumes. Um, and, and even in sometimes there would be desecrations of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. So there are legitimate reasons for frustration, uh, especially among traditionalism with the sacred liturgy following the council. But of course, the distinction needs to be made that that is not what the council intended. And it is not because of the council that those things happen, I like, but because e- of like, the Like even
0: today on social media, you'll see short little video clips that people say on the far right will share of crazy liturgical abuses, mm-hmm. and the caption will be something like, See, that's what happens because of Vatican II. Look right. what Vatican II did. But your point right. is, no, look, like supporters of Vatican II equally reject those sorts of abuses yes. because that's not what the Second Vatican Council taught or encouraged. And that's what we have to be so
1: careful of nowadays. Typically, a lot of times we lack in the intellectual subtlety to make distinctions. And so there's been a conflation of the Second Vatican Council and all of its teachings with particular liturgical abuses, and that can't be the case. So we need to be able to distinguish between the council and these abuses that have taken place. You're absolutely right. As a lover of the Second Vatican Council and as a priest of the church, those are frustrating to me as well. All those liturgical abuses are directly in contradiction to the Second Vatican Council.
0: All right, how about this one, that the Second Vatican Council ended the Latin Mass, it introduced this whole new crazy Mass to replace it, the Novus Ordo. Right. What do you say to that?
1: There's a lot to be said in that particular critique. Yeah, you got, you got uh, about it, 10 seconds. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, answer it in 20 words <laughs> or less, okay? So there was an intervention that took place. Uh, one of the cardinals, a very famous cardinal, a man, a holy man of good heart, Cardinal Altiavani. Uh, famously called the Altiovanni Intervention, and a lot of the traditionalist critiques are based upon Altiovanni's intervention, as well as on uh, Archbishop Lefebvre and his own critique of not Sacanacentic Conchilium but of the new Missal. So that would be the Missal of St. Paul VI. That's what we—that's what's called in a mundane way the Novus Ordo, but its proper name would be the Missal of St. Paul VI. Actually, let
0: me let me jump in and interject and make one important sure. point, that Archbishop Lefebvre—so he was the leader of this Far right spinoff group, the SSPX, famously rejected Vatican II. That's what led him into schism. Archbishop Lefebvre signed all the documents of Vatican II, including Sacrosanctum Concilium. So you know, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories of like, well, he didn't really know what he was signing, or he was sort of pressured into doing it. But the fact is, he signed that document on the liturgy, meaning presumably. He didn't find it problematic right. the problem and emerged even after it, the the documents were released.
1: Yeah, and there's a wonderful biography that I've read on Archbishop Lefebvre. Again, a holy man. I don't want to villainize him in any way, shape, or form, but definitely a man who, who suffered from those misinterpretations himself. And even he, in his writings, will say that there's a lot which the council intended which was not done properly. <laughs> And so even he recognizes the para-council versus the council, but of course he went about it the wrong way. So in, in recognizing his factions, his he decided to go the opposite way of thinking and suffering with the church and trying to really continue the reform properly. I think a good foil, if you will, to Lefebvre would be Pope Benedict XVI. So here's someone who recognized the same things that Lefebvre recognized. Here's a man who saw the same things that Lefebvre saw, but handled it in an obedient and loving way to Mother Church in a way that Lefebvre did not. Uh, Yeah, so the Latin Mass. Nowhere, nowhere did Vatican II ever get rid of the Latin Mass. We can see this with Pope Benedict XVI in the publication of Summorum Pontificum, which was a motu proprio, which basically means a church document written by the Pope letting us know that we could use the extraordinary form, meaning any Latin rite priest is allowed to use the extraordinary form at any time. The extraordinary form is what was the mass that was properly, um, excuse me, commonly used before Vatican II. So the beauty of it in the Latin rite is that we now have two liturgies, which are both equally valid and both equally allowed to be celebrated by any priest at any time. And that's wonderful. I mean, that's, that's a powerful thing. And so ideally with the second Vatican council, what would be taking place is that you would have two coinciding liturgies, both of which complement one another, and both of which emphasize different mysteries of the Eucharistic sacrifice. Because the Missal of St. Pius V, or the Missal of St. John Twenty Third, the Extraordinary Form, is a gorgeous Mass. I mean, it's an absolutely beautiful liturgy that has, is rich and filled with profound theology, but that doesn't mean that it has to dismiss the beautiful theology of this Missal of St. Paul Sixth, which also in its own right has incredible places of focus. But nowhere in a single Vatican II document does it say to get rid of Latin. I encourage you to read paragraphs 50 through 60 of Sacto Septim Concilium to answer that critique.
0: All right. Again, that's like a whole—I mean, even the whole episode that we did would, would barely get into the beginning of that discussion, but that's maybe right. a, a quick overview. Another one you'll often hear um, from uh, traditional-minded Catholics on the far right, and I, I hate using all these terms, traditional, not traditional, because, I mean—
1: who, Well, I would I would say this. The terms that I typically use, Brandon, is traditionalism and the paracouncil. I think those are two categories, because you have traditional, which is— Good. It's a good thing to be traditional. What right. Right? Well, Catholics it's,
0: against tradition? We, we right. believe in sacred tradition.
1: Right, right, right. But traditionalism is something very different. And so and it's a good thing to desire adjournment, to desire renewal, but being part of the para-council or subscribing to para-conciliar thoughts is very different from that. So those are, instead of using right or left, those are usually the two, the two categories that I use, para-conciliar thinking and traditionalism.
0: Fair enough. So this is another objection you would hear from traditionalism representatives that the second vatican council was intended to be pastoral and therefore it's not binding or it's not authoritative and they'll often quote this line from pope paul VI. Um, he made he said this after the council had concluded and he's kind of reflecting back on the council he said there are those who ask what authority what theological qualification the council intended to give its teachings knowing that it avoided issuing solemn dogmatic definitions engaging the infallibility of the ecclesiastical magisterium kind of a mouthful but he's basically saying it issued no solemn dogmatic infallible statements but then he continues the answer is known by whoever remembers the conciliar declaration of march 6 1964 repeated on november 16 1964 that said this given the council's pastoral character it avoided pronouncing, and in an extraordinary manner, dogmas endowed with the note of infallibility. Now, there's a lot there, but again, how this is usually interpreted is the Second Vatican Council didn't teach anything infallibly, therefore, it's not really binding or authoritative. What do you say right. to that? <laughs> uh, it's an ecumenical
1: council, guys. <laughs> I mean, It doesn't get more weighted or authoritative than that. What we have here, of course, is, again, we have to have intellectual subtlety. It's a matter of language and emphasis.
0: Uh,
1: typically, the Vatican Council is characterized as a pastoral council, but I really think that is incorrect. I would call it a mystagogical council. That's a better way to describe it. When I say mystagogical, that's an ancient Greek word that was actually renewed by the Second Vatican Council based on the mystagogy of Cyril of Alexandria and Cyril of Jerusalem, focusing on the essentials of church teaching, so the seven sacraments. The, the real depth of what it means to be Catholic, the mystery of the Church, the mystery of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the depths of the Eucharist. This is The Second Vatican Council, for example, is the council that brought back the RCIA program. I know that many of our listeners are converts to Catholicism. You're welcome, right? Vatican II <laughs> is the one that brought that back. And that's not to say that people couldn't convert before the Second Vatican Council. I'm not saying that. But this notion of forming the faithful, And understanding the teachings of the church before allowing them to come into the sacraments of initiation, that was one of the renewals of Vatican II. So to answer that particular critique, the emphasis of Vatican II was this dialogue with the world, was not to be authoritative, but to be mystical, and to be mystagogical, to be theological, in the deepest sense of what that word means, to plumb the depths of the mystery. You know where you could see this best and where the Council Fathers do this best for us? And I've been doing so much study on this recently because of the book. As I read over and over again the Second Vatican Council documents, I appreciate more and more how the Council Fathers catechize us through the way in which they write the documents. What I mean by that is the form of their language. So as opposed to writing the document on the sacred liturgy and just listing from this point forward, the mass will do this, and then that will be done, and then that will be done. Instead, the first 10 paragraphs of Sacrosanctum of Chilium don't mention a single change to the sacred liturgy. The first 10 full paragraphs instead reflect on Christ Jesus as high priest, his relationship to Adam and how he's the new Adam, and his fulfillment through his sacrifice on the cross and the life of the church. So they give this theological framework in order to avoid the critique that's being launched against them in this very idea that it was somehow an ideological program meant to impose its will upon the masses. Not at all. It was a rediscovery of these essential characteristics of the church and a desire to bring them to the forefront like never before. So the Second Vatican Council most certainly holds an infallible weight and magisterial weight. As faithful Catholics we are bound to read these documents and to understand them and to also presume with humility that mother Church knows more than me and that she has a love for Christ which overshadows my own personal love for Christ or ideas my individualistic opinions and my first posture always I've had this since I was a teenager and I I read the Catechism of the Catholic Church the first time cover to cover when I was 14 and when I read that, writing i approached it saying i trust the church before i trust myself i trust that the church will not harm me and that she does not seek to dull my intellect or my intimacy with jesus christ and that's what's allowed me the freedom to dialogue and to enjoy the fruits of the second vatican council and all the other fruits that have come there afterwards
0: so I mean it's a complete non-starter, I think, to suggest in any way that this council was not authoritative or not binding. Even at the extremes, you'll have people claiming it wasn't even valid, that it was right, invalidly right. convened because right. of some weird conspiracies. I'm gonna include a link to an article beneath this that I think pithily answers a lot of this type of objection. It's by Dr. Jeff miris Myris, and it's titled Pope Paul the Sixth on Vatican ii and it kind of takes this statement, unpacks it and provides some other ones. So I'd encourage uh, listeners to read that. Real quick, couple more uh, objections that you'll hear from traditional lists. And again, I'm using that phrase in the way we defined it earlier. Um, one is that the Second Vatican Council documents have too much ambiguity, and that mm-hmm. ambiguity was intended so that it could later be exploited by bad players who wanted to use these documents right. to permit certain you know, uh, bad things in the church. And then finally, I'll, you can answer both of these together, mm-hmm. that the Second Vatican Council was too friendly, too open, too welcoming to secular modernity, that it was like bending over backwards to like change the church to fit the agenda of the world. Uh, what do right. you say to those?
1: Yeah, within those two critiques, the first one of course is a lot of presumption with very little evidence. Uh, that's that's really a bold claim to say that an ecumenical council convened by the magisterium of Mother Church uh, Secretly was trying to be ambiguous and tricky so that Paraconsiliar thinkers later on could use that to their advantage to cripple the faithful uh, So that that's a very bold claim that I see Nearly no evidence to support. Um, once again, I will say that in my own studies. Yes, there were these paraconciliar thinkers yes some of them were present at the council did they dictate the holy spirit's will no no they didn't Uh, the holy spirit's greater than those thinkers and the holy spirit had his will done at vatican ii not the will of the paracouncil and so when it comes to these documents and their finalized versions that is what the spirit desired, desired to say and so our duty is to really dive into them and seek to understand them In those areas of ambiguity, so-called ambiguity, I wouldn't say that they're ambiguous. I would say that we're just approaching them with the wrong kind of hermeneutic, meaning the wrong kind of, of lens, the wrong way of interpretation. They were not meant to be these clear dogmatic, in the sense of the Council of Trent, dogmatic declarations, because Trent had a different focus. Trent was an amazing council. I love the Council of Trent. I read all of its documents. But its focus was to combat the heresy of Protestantism to safeguard the teachings of Mother Church. That was not the task of the Church in the 20th century or the 21st century in the third millennium. We have a different focus, that's all. So there's nothing diabolical here. There's nothing that's you know underhanded here. It's just that Mother Church, through the grace of the Spirit, has discerned uh, a different way of approaching the world, and that way has allowed a lot of good things to take place. So yeah, so that's definitely, uh, once again, a non-starter, and that's a lot to presume. Uh, and, and same thing for the second point as well. We have to be so careful about uh, in, in the way that we approach and we discuss these different topics.
0: All right. Um, at, because I don't want to just keep hammering on the far right, the traditionalismists, however you want to define that, let's <laughs> let's go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and look at some of the objections that more so-called paraconciliar progressive Catholics have against Vatican II. Um, so one of them is that the texts are too rigid they're too conservative a lot of you saw this in during the council itself a lot of the perio- periconciliar theologians would rush out to the media and complain immediately that basically the second vatican council just reaffirmed you know traditional catholic teaching and they thought i thought this was supposed to be like a new reforming revolutionary council but it kind of just doubled down on the same old stuff what do you say to that type of type of objection
1: yeah so the again the council of the theologians or that that self-appointed magisterium that we were talking about before uh the council of these theologians found a good friend in the media (laughs) And they most certainly utilize that to their advantage on a regular basis. And we see the negative ramifications of that even up to this day. Yeah, so this critique, of course, is unfounded. Uh, the whole purpose of the Council was to find a way to dialogue with the modern world. But at the same time, the Church's purpose is not to jeopardize its substance just for the sake of dialogue. Mother Church has been gifted with the fullness of truth. She's received within her own heart by the grace of her spouse, Jesus Christ, the grace to share with the world what the world needs to hear and what the world is desiring to know. And to think that maintaining Latin in the liturgy is rigid, to think that maintaining that the church is the sacrament of salvation is rigid, to think that defending the episcopacy in the unique Identity of the priesthood is rigid. So these are some of the common critiques from the far left about Vatican II, because Vatican II does defend Latin in the liturgy. Vatican II does de- defend the particularities and the uniqueness of the priesthood of Jesus Christ and the men who are called to that priesthood and that vocation. To critique that is to try to morph the church now into our own likeness and image, and that is always a very dangerous thing to do. Our duty is to conform to the beauty and teaching of the church, not the other way around.
0: I know a lot of the people watching from the outside of vatican ii were disappointed that it didn't engage topics that were in dispute at the time for example the most prominent one was the issue of birth control famously a lot of not not just ordinary catholics but a lot of the council fathers were hoping that the issue of birth control would be on the table for vatican ii and that they could debate it you know talk about it and eventually make a make a pronouncement on birth control through the vatican documents but Pope Paul VI took it off the table and said this is something that's going to be addressed after the council, which he eventually did in Humana Vitae. Um, But it represents, I think, a lot of the unfulfilled hopes of more progressive Catholics, that the council didn't go far enough, that you had this spirit of the council that was alive and represented by many of the council fathers, but it just kind of got stymied, that the council needed to do more. Uh, Again, what do you say to that sort of rejection?
1: Uh, you brought up the famous spirit of Vatican II. You know, we had a joke in in seminary, and it was actually inspired by by a, a bishop that came and gave us a conference one time. But you know, every time that we said the spirit of attitude, we go, "Ooh, you know, oh,
0: it's scary." <laughs> the spirit, of course, the spirit of Vatican II is code word for my opinion on Vatican II, yeah. and not <laughs> and not the Holy Spirit, which was the spirit of the Va- of Vatican II. Right, right. <laughs> And so as, as the bishop who
1: came and gave us our, our retreat, what he said to us, he said, if you hear the phrase Spirit of Vatican II, get ready that everything that person is about to say is not what Vatican II taught. <laughs> and so, yeah, the Spirit of Vatican II became very famous. It's still famous even until this day. So this is where you'll, you'll get people saying, well, if you want to use Gregorian chant in the Mass, that's against the Spirit of Vatican II, right? And I, and I always ask them, well, where, where in the document does it say that we can't use Gregorian chant at Mass? Um, or where in the document does it say that we that there shouldn't be this relationship between the priesthood and the laity, or that there's that the sacraments are no longer as important as they used to be, um, or that it doesn't matter what denomination you are. You know, it doesn't say any of these things in the document, but according to the spirit of Vatican II, it does. So once again, we have to really be able to distinguish between the spirit of Vatican II and the actual culture and teaching of the Second Vatican Council. So to that critique, I, w- I would say once again, that our duty is to be obedient to the council. Our our duty is to listen to the movements of the Holy Spirit and to really trust that that's what the Lord is calling us to be faithful to on our own time for our own sainthood.
0: All right, before we wrap up here with our book recommendations, I want to conclude with one final point because I think it's one Father Blake and I would both agree on. And I think it sums up all of the distinctions and variants that we've been discussing so far. It was introduced by pope benedict the 16th when he reflected decades later back onto the second vatican council which again he attended he was a major player he was on the inside you know so he was involved he knew deeply what the second vatican council really was supposed to be about and he introduced. and on that note about
1: pope benedict brandon not only was he an influencer at the council i would say that no one has done more to influence the proper implementation of the council than Pope Benedict. When he's canonized, which I firmly believe he will be, and when he's a doctor of the church, which I firmly believe he will be, uh, that will be for multiple reasons. But one of the main reasons will be for safeguarding the intention of the Second Vatican Council from any sort of perversion or misapplication.
0: He introduced these two categories, the hermeneutic of rupture, and the hermeneutic of reform, often called the hermeneutic of continuity. So he he said all the ways of reading and interpreting the Council can be lumped into one of these two groups, the hermeneutic of rupture, which means you see the Second Vatican Council as a definitive break with all the tradition before it. And listen, everything Father Blake and I, all the objections we just talked about from the far right and from the far left, both fall into this bucket. They both see... The council as rupture the far right people hate the fact that it's a rupture because they would rather stick with the tradition before it the people on the far left are delighted that it's a rupture because it's something new and different than everything in the past but they both agree that the vatican council was a rupture however all of those rupture type interpretations are wrong because the second vatican council was actually in continuity with everything that came before it, because it was inspired by the same Holy Spirit that inspired all the past councils and papal pronouncements, etc. And so what Pope Benedict underscored throughout his papacy, it might be like his master idea mm-hmm. um, that we need to read the council as a development, a true development. And again, I don't want to get all the way down to this rabbit trail, but John Henry Newman's idea of the development of doctrine. The Second Vatican Council did develop a lot of teachings, but authentically, not in contradiction to their essence. So they quote unquote, changed in the sense they develop like an acorn develops into a tree. But there was not a rupture, there was not a contradiction or a break between earlier teachings. Um, Would you say like this is to me, where the line in the sand today really is? This is why the Second Vatican Council remains, quote unquote, controversial, because you have those who see it as a rupture, and those who see it as a wonderful continuity with, you know, the 1900 years of church history before it very much. So
1: very much. So I I would say that is definitely the defining line, but also one of the reasons is that there's a lot of people who are learning about the council secondhand. That actually is the bigger problem. So if we had more people who actually read the documents themselves, then we could get into a more distinguished uh, conversation about rupture versus continuity. But the more base levels that we have a lot of people who have not ever actually encountered the council But rather are hearing it through other resources, whether positive or negative negative. And so one of the main things I would love for our listeners and viewers to take from this podcast is please read Vatican II, and I know that Brandon's going to uh, to emphasize that in just a moment But to read these documents so that you could see why Pope Benedict sees them as continuity so you could see why the council fathers Had peace and conscience voting yes on these documents and saying that yes, these are divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and these are guided by the hand of God for the future of the church.
0: All right. I got a stack of like seven or eight books here, <laughs> and instead of, <laughs> and you know that if either one of us starts talking about books, things can get out of hand really quickly. So, yes. here's what I'd like to do: I'm just briefly gonna hold each one up, mention the title, give a sentence of why I like it. Father Blake, you interrupt me and jump in at any point if you want to add any, uh, any supplementary remarks uh, before I get to the books. Father Blake has written a really good article for the Word on Fire blog, which I'll link to, called Reclaiming Vatican II. It's actually the basis for this longer book that he's writing. Highly encourage that. Um, That's a, a much shorter, succinct version of everything we've talked about here, but it also gives you something to share with other people. Maybe they won't listen to this hour and 15 minute long podcast. I don't know why. Uh, but (laughs) the article would be something more digestible to send them. You can read that in five or 10 minutes and get a sense of the things we're talking about here. So that's the first thing to read, reclaiming Vatican II. All right. So as Father Blake said, the, the, the first thing you should do before you read any other books about Vatican II, before you listen to podcasts or watch YouTube videos, read the documents of Vatican II. Now, a couple caveats they can be intimidating at first glance in terms of size. I'm holding here the most popular edition of the collection of Vatican II documents. I mean, and look at it. It's it's very thick. Let me see the one I got. It's, it's 1,022 pages. Now, this includes all 16 of the major documents of Vatican II, but it also has a wide assortment of like supplementary post-conciliar documents. So Um, You don't have to read everything in this book. You want to focus on those 16. But in particular, as Father Blake hinted earlier, there's really four major documents, what they call the four constitutions, which are the most important of the 16. And I'd encourage you, even if you don't read the other 12, knock those out. You have to read those. If you're a Catholic in the 21st century, you have to read those four documents. I'm assuming you'd agree, Father Blake.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it is obliged upon you. <laughs> if you are alive right now, you should read those
0: four documents. <laughs> and let me just say, like, uh, in this edition, I went to the table of contents and got the page counts. You know, the, it's like a normal, normal size text, normal size page. It's not like, you know, double column stuff. And listen to the lengths of these documents. So you have, of the four constitutions, you have two that are called dogmatic constitutions. So they're like the, the two most important of the 16 documents. One of them is Dei Verbum, which is the constitution on divine revelation. It's 15 pages long. Okay, guys, 15 pages. So that's one sitting. Anybody can do that. It'll take you, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. So sit down for 20, 30 minutes, maybe tonight. Tonight, if you've never read Vatican II, sit down tonight for 30 minutes and read Dei Verbum. You can find it in book, but it's also freely available online. All the Vatican documents are on the Vatican's website. So read it on the computer, read it on your phone. Uh, actually, don't do that. Father Blake and I dis- highly discourage reading on screens. Get the print yes. book. Get the print <laughs> book. Uh, okay, so that's Dei Verbum. The second dogmatic constitution is Lumen Gentium, yeah. which is the Vatican Council document on the church. And it's the longest that, one of these four. That
1: document, by the way, I would have to say is the most beautiful, beautiful of the four. Uh, The most important, I would argue, is actually the one on the sacred liturgy because it establishes the liturgy as the source and summit of the life of the church and the the font from which all the identity of the church flows. So that's why it's the foundational document, I would argue. Others would argue that Lumen Gentium is very wonderful. Theologians would argue that, and and they have valid points to say so. But I would say in the logic of of theology that the liturgy is, is more central. But Lumen Gentium, poetically... Um, Prose-wise, lyrically, is the most beautiful of the four. I mean, really, and I would say that to to all of our listeners, please don't be intimidated by these documents. They're written in a language that is quite beautiful and very inspiring. It's really like doing more spiritual reading than academic reading.
0: I remember as a convert first hearing about the Vatican documents and... I mean, this is embarrassing to admit now, but I was intimidated because the names of all of them were in Latin, and I assumed <laughs> that means they were written in Latin. And so, when people would tell me to read <laughs> which the Vatican, they to, were, which but. they were, no, fair <laughs> enough. But I thought, you know, go read Lumen Gentium. Like, oh, I don't even know Latin. How am I supposed to read that? You know. But as Father Blake said, it's in at least the the good interpretation uh, translations are in beautiful, poetic English, totally readable. I'd say, what, what would you say, Father Blake? If you have a high school education. If it's completed high school, you should be able to handle it. Um, Okay, so you got Dei Verbum, which is 15 pages long. It's on uh, sacred scripture and divine revelation. You have Lumen Gentium, which is on the church. That's 76 pages. You have Sacrosanctum Concilium, which we've talked about a lot here. That's the constitution on the sacred liturgy super important. Father Blake says it's the most important. It's only 36 pages. So again, another one you can read in one sitting. Now it's a lot to take in because there's so many ideas it's discussing, but I mean, you could take an hour and knock that one out. And then finally, you have Gaudium et Spes, which is the Second Vatican Council's constitution on the church in the modern world. So how does the church evangelize? How does the church engage the modern world? That one I think, is it the longest one of, of all is. the documents? So it's 98 pages. Um, so again, like adding these up, I don't have the, the final total here, but just looking at it, we're talking maybe 200 pages, 225 pages. So it's like the length of a normal size book. Mm-hmm. But with with reading a normal size book, you could read the four most important doc, Catholic documents of the past century. And again, I wanna emphasize, I, I think it's obligatory for every Catholic today to read those.
1: Yes. Yes, I agree.
0: Okay, let me briefly go through the rest of them. So I mentioned this book earlier. This is what just came out actually a few months ago. It's by George Weigel. It's called The Irony of Modern Catholic History. And it's kind of a a history of the hundred years before the council, the council itself, and then the, you know, roughly 60, 70 years here after the council and how all these dynamics played out. So if you want to get into the nitty gritty of the people, the players, the movements, the popes, and all these different moving parts, this will give you a really good picture of the uh, environment that this Va- Second Vatican Council launched in. Uh, probably the best one volume summary of the Second Vatican Council mm-hmm. is John O'Malley's book. It's titled What Happened at Vatican II. And again, I was, when I first saw this one, I actually thought there was a question mark at the end of the title. I thought it was like, what happened at Vatican II? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's what happened? Like I'm explaining That's what happened. Three of my book. <laughs> yeah, what, what happened? What happened? <laughs> question mark. But um, John O'Malley is a professor at Georgetown. He's one of the premier church historians of our day. And he gives a, a mostly balanced uh, telling of what happened at the council? So, you get not just from you're not, this isn't just a presentation of the text themselves, but how they came to be. So, it goes into all yeah. the different debates and deliberations and the factions and the discussions. It's, it's fascinating to see how all this came about. Bishop Barron often describes it as the sausage making factory. You know, lots of times we just like to see the sausage, how, you know, the, the meat that comes out that we like to eat. We don't really want to know how the sausage was made. And for all the past councils, generally, nobody really knew how the sausage was made the doors were closed ordinary catholics had no idea about the deliberations of the council of trent but the second vatican council was different because you had you know theologians in the media you had theologians writing diaries and journals and recounting their experiences so we know a lot about what went on inside the council and this book tells the whole story all right this one i know father blake likes a lot uh it's yeah, it's um by father aiden nichols he's a dominican theologian one of the one of the best theologians of the Council, and this is a very thin, short book. It's called it's called Conciliar Octet, a concise commentary on the eight key texts of the Second Vatican Council. So he's just got a chapter on eight of the sixteen documents and reflects on them from the perspective of an Orthodox Catholic theologian. You want to say something else about that, Father Blake?
1: Yes, most certainly. So for each of the four major documents, I have books that I imagine would be coupled with them to help the reader understand them and the essence of them the best. So for example, I know we'll get to this in a moment, but Sacrificent Concilium, I would couple with the Spirit of the Liturgy by Pope Benedict XVI. If you want to know the vision of the Second Vatican Council for the Liturgy, read Spirit of the Liturgy, right? Um, For Lumen Gentium, I would put one of Balthazar's writings on the church, um, or even something like the Theodrama or the Glory of the Lord for however as just an accompaniment text for the council as a whole i would suggest that book by father aiden nichols it is wonderful it's quick easy to access very also theologically acute and really does a wonderful job giving you a background to each document and also understanding once again, the true spirit, the true desire of each of these documents and what they sought to address, as well as some of the ramifications and fallout of how those documents were misimplemented and misrepresented after the council. So for our listeners, I would definitely say read the council documents first. And if you're looking for a quick text as a supplement to the to the documents, that's the book that you should be getting.
0: Yeah, totally agree. I love that proposal. Get yourself a, a set of the Vatican II text themselves and then get that book. Those are the two mm-hmm. you should probably start off with. Um, Here's another good one I like. It's titled The Disputed Teachings of Vatican II, Continuity and Reversal in Catholic Doctrine. And it's written by Thomas Guarino, who's a professor of systematic theology. Um, It's published by Ergman's Press. Good book, small book. But Mm -hmm. what it examines are the major points of contention among the Vatican II documents. So these include the document on religious liberty, the document on ecumenism, or in other words, the Catholic Church's relationships to other Christian communities, Um, the texts that have to do with interreligious dialogue, so the Catholic Church in dialogue with Judaism and Buddhism and Islam and other religions. So it walks through each of those uh, flashpoints but then shows how the texts of Vatican II in those cases are in full continuity with the magisterium before us. So remember, not hermeneutic of rupture, but hermeneutic of reform or continuity. That's what this book defends. And then finally, um, I'm glad Father Blake mentioned Spirit of the Liturgy by Pope Benedict. I don't have that one here, but uh, I'll add that to the list of links. But this is the final one I have here. This is a in a compilation. It's edited by Matthew Lamb and Matthew Levering, two premier Catholic theologians, but it's called Vatican II Renewal Within Tradition. And it takes that same approach that Vatican II was a hermeneutic with a hermeneutic of reform or continuity. But what they've done is collected essays by some of the leading Catholic theologians, bishops, preachers, thinkers from the last hundred years, or excuse me, 50, 60 years since the council. And for every one of the 16 documents, they have two or three essays. So you might have, you know, an essay, uh, I'm looking down the, the list right here from um, Avery Cardinal Dulles talking about Lumen Gentium. Um, you have... Uh, Richard John Newhouse on the decree on social communication. You have Francis Cardinal George, former Archbishop of Chicago, talking about the decree on the church's missionary activity. Um, This is a little heavyweight type of book. It's more academic, lots of footnotes. So it's not the place I'd recommend starting. Um, But if you got the chops for it and you want to understand Vatican II at a more scholarly level, uh, I'd encourage you to pick that one up. Specifically
1: within that book, Mm. I would suggest reading, if you don't read anything else, read the writing from Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI that introduces that book. Mm. So he really explains there the hermeneutic of rupture versus the hermeneutic of continuity. So
0: what's the title of that that section? I was just reading it. It says, A Proper Hermeneutic for the Second Vatican Council. That's what the introduction is titled.
1: That really, Pope Benedict, in a way that only he can, just so lucidly elaborates and helps, helps the reader understand how to interpret the second Vatican council. So I would get that book even just for that essay.
0: So this is a little taste of what it'll be like when you, our dear listeners come to Borough and hang out with father Blake and I, because basically we (laughs) sit in chairs and we talk about the Vatican council and go through about a hundred different books that we're reading and liking. And and discussing. Um, So I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you found it helpful. Again, I'm going to collect all the links, articles, books, things we've mentioned in the show notes for this episode. To find it, just go to burrowshirepodcast.com, click on the title of this episode. So you're on the episode page, and then you'll see all the recommended links beneath that. Uh, How about some final thoughts from you, Father Blake, on uh, what you should know about the Second Vatican Council?
1: Yes. So this has been a very brief introduction, (laughs) hour and
0: 25 minutes (laughs) later, but a very brief, (laughs) very brief
1: introduction. But to the beauty of this council and all that I would say in closing is this our generation is a pivotal generation in church history. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. We are alive at a very important part and a very important time in the history of the church. And one of those key components of our particular vocation is going to be reading these documents, saturating ourselves in their wisdom and implementing them with authenticity, untainted by our own personal ideologies or influences, political influences. That's really going to be an important task for us to have in our hearts. In obedience to the Holy Spirit and what he desires in this time in the church. And so for myself as a priest, this has really helped my identity. As I pray more and more, I read the Second Vatican Council documents on a regular basis. They're spiritual reading for me. I don't read them just as this uh, this sort of historical or academic task. I read them because this is what the Spirit's given me as a millennial Catholic. To understand, to preach, and to live. And even more so as a priest to form and to catechize. So I do encourage our viewers and listeners to please take very seriously our our encouragement to read the Second Vatican Council documents, to make them your own, to fall in love with them. Ask the Holy Spirit, who's the same one that inspired these documents, ask him to help your heart be formed and softened so that you can hear where he's speaking through these documents. And then also, I encourage you to find those other books that we suggested for further study. But the first task is not to just take our word for it that Vatican II was a beautiful grace. Never do that. As Catholics, we're thinkers. We always go to the root, to the source of things. So we encourage you to really go to the source, read these documents, fall in love with them, and then help start understanding and teaching them.
0: I guess the last thought I would add is one I mentioned earlier that for me, the big takeaway is don't listen to the voices that reject the Second Vatican Council, whether on the far left or the far right, because what they're often objecting to is the Paracouncil, is this horrible misinterpretation or misimplementation of what the Council authentically intended. In the few cases, excuse me, in the few cases where they are objecting to the actual texts of the councils, then move the discussion to the question of how should these texts be interpreted? And the mm-hmm. church is quite clear. These texts are interpreted by the authentic magisterium, which is the popes and the bishops in communion with them. And if, you know, if some individual 21st century online commentator disagrees with the pope's interpretation of that, we know which side we want to go on. I'm with right. the popes, I'm <laughs> with the bishops, I'm with the church. Um, so don't be alarmed when people object to Vatican II. Instead, ask what they're objecting to, and then accept and love these documents as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And that's always a question we have to ask
1: ourselves, Brandon, is in the end, who do we trust? Who do we trust? Meaning, there, we'll always reach a point in our journey of faith where we really we don't know. And then at that moment, we have to make an act of faith. And I've always chosen to make my act of faith in the heart of another church. I will place my act of faith in my bishops and I'll place my act of faith in the Holy Father, and the magisterium. I trust that they, that they love me. And even amidst maybe their own brokenness or struggles that they're seeking the truth. And that's always who I want to be with. And that's whenever I take my final breath, that's whose arms I want to die in, the arms of Mother Church and her magisterium.
0: Amen. Well, with that, we'll let you guys go. Thanks so much for watching and enjoying this episode. And we'll see you next time on the Boroughshire Podcast.